Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour, everybody. I am joined by Dr. David Prologo this week, uh, one of the interventional radiology attendings here at Emory University, uh, where I'm also a resident. Uh, so Dr. Prologo, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your schedule to join us on the DaVinci Hour. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, I really think this is uh, such a cool thing, and I appreciate to be part of it. Awesome. Awesome. Maybe give the, um, the guests or the listeners a little bit of a background on your, your education, where you did your training, and kind of how you ended up where you are now. Yeah, sure. Uh, my, my route was, uh, and for all the trainees who might be listening or, or aspiring uh, trainees, my route was, uh, as, as I think everybody's eventually is, was uh, a little bit unusual. I went to Ohio State, which was not unusual for medical school. And then I was a radiology resident at University Hospitals, which is Case Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. And then I took a diagnostic job. There was a, there was a time when radiologists were really in demand and it was right when I was graduating. And so people were recruiting and they were paying a lot and all this. And so I took a diagnostic job for a couple of years. And uh, I, I realized a few things there, which I think are, are, are probably relevant if there are trainees. I, I assume a lot of this audience is trainees. Uh, so I'll, I'll say some of these things that I think are useful that might not apply to the general public. Uh, I learned two very important things at that diagnostic job. The first one was you've got to really decide when you become a doctor what, you, and you and I talked a little bit about this before we started, you've got to divide your uh, aspirations or your future, in my opinion, in one of two major buckets, uh, either private practice or academia. And uh, for me, I was a little bit of a mismatch. I had kind of a private practice job right out of the gate, and I missed all of the things that go along with academia. So I kind of learned that during those two years, which were kind of lost in space. I didn't really gain anything during those two years because then I came back for fellowship at Metro Health, which is in Cleveland also, you know. And then took a job at university hospitals as an attending in interventional radiology for, I think, five years, maybe. Uh, and then I came down to Emory in 2014 for, uh, for really my primary reason for moving here was uh, the chair at the time who recently left to be the dean at USC, Carolyn Meltzer, was super supportive of, uh, of research and academic work. And so I'll drop one more pearl for the aspiring uh, doctors. You want to be aligned with your chair. And uh, she was in support of all the sort of innovation that goes on here at Emory. So I came here and I've been uh, a pig in mud here ever since. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for giving us that background. And like I mentioned, and you talked about you're uh, an interventional radiologist um, right now. Um, mm -hmm. What I, I know you're, we'll, we'll get into this more in depth in a little bit, but you're also board certified in obesity, obesity medicine as well. Maybe, uh, maybe talk about your current clinical practice. Like what are your typical, like, you know, clinical days look like? What type of patients do you see? Pathology procedures, all, all that. Type okay. Of oh, wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I am an interventional radiologist and we are an academic tertiary care center. So uh, just by virtue of that, we cover the high-end cases on call, for sure, and uh, at some of our centers on a day-to-day -day basis. But I personally practice at a small suburban hospital where 99% of my uh, interventional radiology practice is actually uh, oriented toward what I call advanced interventional pain management. And the great majority of my research is also in that space. So that's most of my days. As the years have gone on, I've developed this uh, practice around uh, advanced interventional pain, and it is we're booked out, we're busy. And so that's how I spend most of my days clinically. And when I'm not clinical, I'm uh, doing some sort of interventional radiology research that what is either pain-related or has uh, been spawned from the pain research. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Now are those, those interventional pain procedures, are those like kyphoplasties, like spine interventions, and then, and then other like more peripheral, like kind of nerve and uh, those types of types of interventions. So the way it worked with uh, pain and interventional radiology was uh, we are doing, and one of the things we do in interventional radiology is we use the image guidance to uh, freeze tumors, as I know you know, and most of the audience here is going to realize. And we use cryoablation probes or radiofrequency ablation probes or some other sort of ablative device uh, to kill a tumor. And so about 20 or 25 years ago, some really smart interventional radiologists started to realize that we can kill tumors in other parts of the body that are causing people pain, right? And mm -hmm. so if we find a tumor that's uh, in the abdomen, for example, or involving uh, one of the bones of the pelvis, for example, we can use that same advanced imaging guidance to kill that tumor uh, and ablate the, the interface with the soft tissue and bone and manage pain. So that, that wasn't me. That was a whole group of pioneers who sort of, uh, that's how it started. And once, once, we realized that as a specialty at that time we were, or I, now we're a specialty. And back then we were a subspecialty. Uh, what we realized then was it doesn't have to stop there. So we can use the interventional radiology skill set and the technology at our hands to not only reach tumors that are causing pain, but to reach other pain generators, as well as the nerves that are carrying the pain signal. So that's kind of where my career came in at uh, in time was as, as we were realizing that. And so most of the research that I have done has been really the application of these existing ablation devices to pain generators uh, from phantom limb pain to uh, freezing of nerves, cryonerolysis for management of cancer pain, management of non-cancer pain, uh, and so on. So that's, that's where the, and so, so yes, kyphoplasty is part of it. But uh, we kind of, because we're image guided trained first, we have the ability and skill set to do things like kyphoplasties or epidural injections. Uh, all of the things that are image guided, we can already do because that's our, that's our baseline skill set. We just have to sort of learn the indications that go around that. But the more complicated procedures like radiofrequency ablation of the spine for metastatic disease. Uh, that falls square into our wheelhouse because a few things, a few mutually exclusive things have to come together for it to be ours. Image guidance is only one. That's really kind of the table stakes image guidance. But uh, the next level then becomes ablative technology. And most of the time when it's image guidance and ablative technology, it's ours. So yes, we do kyphoplasties and epidurals, but, but really the advanced interventional pain are the ablative uh, modalities. It's really interesting. You know, I think because the traditional thought of IR is, is like vascular or endovascular type procedures. And I, I think what's really cool is how the field has evolved to include, you know, like you said, taking these skill sets we've learned in other areas of intervention and then applying them to, to new indications, new pathology. Uh, which yeah. Is so cool. it, to some, to some degree, um, Dr. Cooper, you may not realize this, but uh, to some degree, these are evolutionary forces, and we are—we were forced to expand our practice uh, as I was coming up because vascular surgeons were teaching themselves how to do all of the endovascular procedures that interventional radiologists had done. And so, at that point, we and we had to evolve to survive. We either had to figure out a way to capture that business, which people to this day are still trying to do, uh, capture that endovascular arterial business. Or we had to branch out and uh, create new applications like prostate artery embolization or uterine fibroid embolization or all these pain procedures. And so interventional radiologists are always innovating and creating these new spaces, I think in part because of evolutionary forces, as I mentioned, but we should also evolve and try to keep the stuff that we invent. And then we'll have a whole bunch of options going forward. Definitely. Definitely. And then is there, I'm just curious, is there an outpatient clinic aspect to your, to your uh, practice as well? Do you see patients in the output? And I guess what type of, is it like pain patients? And then also do you bring your obesity medicine uh, training into that as well? So, yeah. So the obesity medicine thing is a, is a, is a thing that's developed in, in parallel. So the answer is yes, we have clinic. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I might not necessarily uh, follow the party line on this one, Certainly, the interventional radiology message and the society and everybody who's in charge of everything 
are promoting us uh, to be clinical and take care of our patients. And what they're trying to do is answer this, uh, answer this demand that I mentioned to you earlier, keep our patients, or this is, this is the answer that our specialty has for that. Let's have clinic, let's be clinical, let's follow our patients, let's take care of our patients. And I'm not saying that that is a bad idea, uh, but it developed while I was in interventional radiology. When I chose uh, to go into interventional radiology, it wasn't like that at all. It was just people ordering procedures. You did the procedure and then uh, and then you went home and went to your kid's football game or something. So it really bait and switched me along the way. Uh, but I don't want to send mixed messages. So yes, we have clinic. And, uh, and the most important part of clinic, again, I'm just trying to drop pearls for trainees that might be listening. And my opinion and our specialty is that you don't lose these patients to follow up. It's really the post-procedure follow-up that's most important uh, to make sure that you know if everything is going well or not going well, and they're not just out there, uh, out there in the world. The obesity medicine uh, is, a, is a totally sort of parallel development. I had an interest in weight loss and I had an interest in writing. And so for a long time, I wanted to uh, write a book about weight loss. And I thought that if I was going to do that, I really should be an authority on the subject. Uh, and not just write about all the stuff that the guys at the gym were saying. Yeah. But but honestly, I might have sold more books if I did that. But <laughs> I, I wanted instead to be an authority. So there was an opportunity and still is an opportunity for physicians to train in obesity medicine outside of a formal clinical in-person fellowship. Uh, it's online training and it's in-person uh, training in, in the form of didactic lectures. And, uh, and there's a certification exam, which is quite difficult, in my opinion. But uh, there is the opportunity to learn and become a certified expert uh, in that space, which is what I wanted to do for purposes of writing this book, right? But uh, as I was doing that, I, in my day job, as we discussed earlier, I was doing a lot of nerve freezing to manage pain, using CT guidance to to find nerves that were carrying pain from cancer signals and freeze them, which we still do a lot of that. And as I was going through the obesity medicine process, I started to learn about the anatomy and physiology of uh, the nerves that were carrying the hunger signal, the nerves that were managing transit through the stomach, uh, all of these things that were um, related to obesity that were being, or, and or weight loss that were being uh, transmitted by nerves. At the same time, so three things were going on. I was practicing in interventional radiology. Talk about uh, serendipity here or, or mutual exclusivity. I was practicing in interventional radiology. I had developed this unusual or uh, somewhat rare uh, niche inside that specialty uh, around pain and then further refined it to targeting and freezing nerves. That was the subject of my research. So that was thing one. Thing two, I was uh, going through this certification process and education process in obesity medicine and weight management that, uh, that all of a sudden was talking about nerves. There's a doctor, an interventional radiologist named Cliff Weiss, who practiced at Johns Hopkins, who's quite famous. And he's quite famous because he used embolization techniques to uh, embolize the left gastric artery and thereby decrease the production of ghrelin, the hunger hormone, from the stomach. Oh, so wow. he, he was using interventional radiology techniques for weight loss. And, I mean, it was all people still to this day. I mean, he's like, uh, he's like a movie star in interventional radiology. It was such a big deal. And so uh, I thought that that was brilliant. And so that was the third thing that was happening at, at the same time. And so the thought occurred to me as I was learning these things, if I'm shutting down these nerves for purposes of pain, can I shut down this nerve and shut off the hunger signal? Therefore, people won't be hungry, which is one of the reasons why they fail diets, uh, and, and they'll be more successful on their diet. And so uh, that's where, that's where the, a procedure evolved called a cryovagotomy, where we use CT guidance to guide that same cryoablation probe that originally was freezing tumors, then freezing nerves, and now going to freeze this nerve for a different reason uh, that isn't pain. And, uh, and the patients did indeed all report, or 98 point something percent of them at the follow-up points reported decreased hunger. And so then all of, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that was a big deal. 
and got all kinds of media attention and we went on the Today Show and all this kind of stuff. And the other thing that the, the vagal nerve does is it, it increases food transit through the stomach or mediates food transit through the stomach through uh, peristalsis. And so shutting that off gave people sort of this uh, partial transient gastroparesis and how that translates to uh, a clinical outcome is people can't eat as much. So although the original intention was to shut off hunger, what we really found out was people couldn't eat as much because they were, they were getting full faster. So they weren't hungry and they were getting full faster. So they were eating so much less. Well, wow, that's, that's like almost analogous to like the goal of like bypass, like gastric bypass surgery in a way, if, if you will. It, the original goal, right? Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, which is a different topic, what really is happening in gastric bypass. But that was the original goal. You're right. And, uh, and so, so as that procedure occurred, uh, I was also writing this book, but I also have my day job. So everything started to get really, really busy. And finally, now, years later, I mean, that was five years ago, that study. Years later, uh, we're starting to bring it all together, where we use all of the actual obesity medicine techniques that we have, things that we know, combine them with the procedure, uh, and then give people this brand new opportunity to, uh, to lose weight. That's fascinating. I mean, that's, that's amazing how all those different kind of like events merge together to kind of like propel this, this field further or this aspect of, of, uh, obesity medicine. And then specifically like these obesity interventions, that's, it's amazing. It's really quite unbelievable how it all happens. And, uh, I talk a lot about fat shaming and not fat shaming people. And I talk a lot about how, uh, the fat shamers have never really felt the forces of uh, survival when trying to make a change and blah, blah, blah. So, so it's not blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, it's something that I'm passionate about. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because the real reason that we did that cryovagotomy uh, study was not necessarily for people to lose weight. It was indeed from a, a scientific academic interest. Can we cut off hunger? That's going to be kind of cool, right? Sure. Uh, but really... I wanted to show in the simplest way to the general public that if you do something to the body, then this outcome changes. So everyone who's out there making t-shirts and yelling from the, the mountaintops that it's, it's mind over matter and you just have to suck it up and uh, you got to really want it and all this kind of stuff. You know, we didn't implant willpower with that, with that procedure. We, it's, it's not mind over matter. It's the other way around. It's matter over mind. So you do something to the body and then in, in retrograde fashion, the mind will change. So considering our audience, if I could just delve into a slightly nerdy explanation of that. Yeah, of course, please. So, <laughs> um, not, not that the audience are nerds, but that, uh, you know, when I, sometimes when I'm on podcasts and I, I start to talk about what I'm about to talk about, people just shut up. That's not, but, but just real quick, uh, uh, this retrograde change in the mind. This is not a theoretical thing or some crazy thing that I made up and, and doesn't have, you know, I just made it up and tried to market it. That's not what it is at all. There are imaging changes that happen in the mind. The best example we have of this is phantom limb pain. People have amputations. They have a pain in, in a foot that's not there. You get an MRI. You can show with functional MRI uh, where these pain signals are coming into the brain and why these people feel these things. And then you go out and you freeze the, the nerve that was transected, the nerve in the amputated limb. And you cut off the abnormal signals that are being sent by that damaged transected nerve. And the mind changes, the brain changes over time. You can see it with MRI. So, and the phantom limb pain, of course, gets better. But the retrograde changes in the mind, that's what I'm trying to hang my hat on. Before, before my time on this earth is through, that's what I want to show and prove and convince people of because there's chanting of, of mind over matter, right? And, uh, but where is that coming from? Most of the time it's coming from people who have not accomplished specifically weight loss, right? I mean, these people have not, 99% of the people you see nowadays, I guess it's TikTok or wherever, who are chanting this, this mind over matter stuff, they haven't done it themselves. And they don't know what they're even saying, right? And you certainly wouldn't use this mind over matter approach with any other disease. If I came to you with coronary artery disease and you would just tell me, you know, I, you got, first of all, you would shame me for having coronary artery disease. And secondly, you would tell me that, you know, I just got to have a lot of willpower and overcome this coronary artery disease. Like what? I need some medicine or something, bro. 
so so that's 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 where I'm we're, and we can show that, but it's hard to it's probably easier to explain it here. It's hard to explain that without uh, without losing people on the mm-hmm. on the mass uh, stage. You know that that look. This is really a, a a process in the body, and if we modify the body, then the brain will change down the road. And and that's so not to you know purposely segue to the book, but <laughs> I do want to quickly talk about the book because that's the per- the book is called the Catching Point Transformation. Sure, sure. The reason it's called that is because when we make changes to the body and time goes on and the mind starts to change, you get to a critical point called the catching point. And after that, the experience of weight loss is different because the original experience of weight loss for most overweight people is a miserable, terrible, uh, depressing, fatigue-inducing, anxiety state of crap and stuff. And they don't want to do it. And uh, But here on the other end, the, the lean population they love it. They'll tell you, I can't live without it. You know, I got to run every day. I mean, there's no, I can't, I just, I look forward to it. And, you know, there's such a disconnect between those two populations. But uh, if we can make the right changes to the body, get people through to and through the catching point, and we've done it, we've done it so many times, and you'll see the patient change their ways, their mind, their perception of the whole thing. All of a sudden, they're taking pictures at the gym, They've become one of these people that are enjoying all of this now. They've crossed over, um, but you can't cross over without getting yourself to the catching point first. And so that's what we talk. That's what I wanted to talk about in the book. So I wrote it in there and now it's out there. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting what you bring up is it's, I feel like obesity and correct me if you disagree, but uh, it's almost like mental illness in a way where like people for so long thought it was just this like psychological aspect, but there's more as more research is done. There's this much more like a, a pathophysiological and neurochemical aspect to it. And then, like you said, even like heart disease, for example, like you were talking about, it's not just a matter of like, Oh, they did, you know, certain lifestyle factors. There's certain genetic factors. Like these, these are much more complex than people realize. Oh, for sure. The people historically, the best example I have of this uh, young fella is that we used to uh, we used to uh, bark the same way about ulcers and say that they were caused by stress at work and uh, even prescribed relaxation and time off work. Uh, to, and then all of a sudden we discover, oh, wait, th- these are caused by a bacteria. And now we give people antibiotics. Right. <laughs> but what we really should say is, oh, sorry, you know, sorry, <laughs> totally wrong about that. Um, and, and it's the same kind of thing when you talk about mental illness, of course, there's a, there's a biological basis to that, that we can measure when people are in a, a state of depression versus, versus not. And, and the, the lay translation of that, the general public sort of, uh, ethical crimes that go along with that are the, exactly the same. If you have someone who hasn't experienced that hasn't felt that uh, sort of uh, mental illness. They think they know mm-hmm. just as the lean person thinks that, that if they could switch places with an overweight person, they would just crush it and lose all the weight. There's no reason for them to think that that is true. They have no idea what it's like on the other side. And my bet would be that they wouldn't make it. I mean, the CDC says 150 million people uh, failed diets last year. That's a lot of people, 150 million. So, so this person who thinks that if they switch places, they know what it would be like based on nothing uh, and that they would succeed further uh, is nonsensical because they don't know what it's like. They haven't felt the forces. And I'm glad you brought up mental illness because it's the same kind of thing, right? It's the, Mm -hmm. it's the same sort of uh, judgment that goes on. You know, if I felt like that, I would just buck up and get through the day. No, you wouldn't because you don't know what that's like. You make this assumption that you know what it's like. It's really no different than one of the things I say in the book, because I talk about this topic. This is the topic of the book. What you're saying Mm -hmm. uh, is that maybe even in the preface, I say this, but if you're in a third world country, for example, and you're a teenager, right? And then you've got a teenager over here in in upper middle class uh, Georgia, where we are. Mm-hmm. The, the upper middle class Georgia people give advice to the third world country uh, teenager and say, listen, you just every night, you got to eat your dinner, you got to study hard and 
you got to wake up. But meanwhile, over here, there's no electricity, there's no school. So, so that advice is completely falls on deaf ears, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and what's worse is if the person giving the advice, the trainer in the weight loss example, right, or the general, you know, go getter in the mental illness, then when this person doesn't succeed uh, inside different circumstances, then we judge them and make it worse and say, uh, you know, just pile on to them and now make them self-loathe and question themselves and, uh, and just make everything worse. So, so mental illness is a super example. And then know what another one is, Dr. Cooper? Pain. Pain is oh, another yeah. one. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you've not been in pain, then you do not know what that is like. And if you have not had uh, the experience of having to rely on others to manage your pain, and then you do definitely not know what that is like. And if you've never had that experience, you will see this sort of typical thing that develops when caregivers, and we're guilty of it, healthcare, and we're also guilty in the weight loss arena. I think we do better with mental health, healthcare workers. I like to, I like to think so, but we're definitely guilty in weight loss. Uh, and we're definitely guilty in pain. And what happens is we develop this sort of judgmental thing like, oh my gosh, here's this person calling again. And, you know, they, they're showing up in the ER because they want pain meds. They could possibly be showing up in the ER, not for that reason, but because when you're out in the world and you're not a doctor, how do you manage your pain, right? Yeah. You, you call and get an appointment three months from now. But so, so the point is that uh, without being in that other person's shoes, this disconnect happens. And then what you do with that disconnect so often is so wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Is in, And so people are out there that have switched places. I was on a podcast the other day. Guy said he was a Marine, was fine, living his life. Everything was cool. Had a shoulder surgery and then ended up with a brachial plexus neuropathy. Wow. And the next thing he knew, he was in pain. And all of a sudden, every the whole perspective changed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we really have to, especially as caregivers, we have to recognize that we don't know what it's like. I don't want to give you the advice or any other caregiver, you know, put yourself in their shoes because you can't, you can't put yourself in their shoes. You haven't had that experience, so you don't know. So my advice then, and again, this is what the book is about, acknowledge that you don't know. Acknowledge that you don't know and go from there. That's that's the first step. But thank you for bringing up mental illness. That's an excellent point. Yeah, of course, of course. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the DaVinci Hour podcast is brought to you by DaVinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. I want to touch back on the obesity medicine thing for just one second. Maybe back sure. up a little bit and just tell us what exactly that is. Cause like, you know, it's one of those, you could hear it and maybe not know, fully know exactly what that is. And then is that something that typically like a like family medicine or internal medicine would do a fellowship in, or is that some, I mean, you're an interventional radiologist, so it seems like any licensed physician could potentially become a, you know, certified in that as well. That, that is the way it is now. So there, there is a traditional pathway and it is usually primary care doctors that follow that uh, for that extra year of training and certification. And then uh, there is this sort of extra fellowship or outside of fellowship CME pathway. Mm -hmm. And the great majority of obesity medicine certified doctors, I believe are internal medicine or family practice. But the experts, or at least the people who seem to be writing the guidelines, are endocrinologists and cardiologists and not a whole lot of interventional radiologists, for sure. But the answer is yes, you can do this outside of whatever subspecialty you pick. 
And it's, it's amazing to see, I know I'm sort of soapboxing a lot here, but <laughs> it's okay. amazing to see when you cross over specialties like this, how siloed we are, you know, mm -hmm. and, and how much more there is out there to understand about a given topic. And moreover, how problems might be solved by this, by opening your mind to these new problems. You know, I'm sitting on a percutaneous cryoneurolysis procedure that for me at this point is, is a no brainer. It's muscle memory at this point. I'm freezing nerves all the time. Uh, and then you've got this whole other subspecialty operating in parallel, trying to solve problems around, you know, weight loss. And so you can come up with something different because you have different tools and, and then you can, you can combine them and solve new problems, which is fun, but yes, you could do it outside of training and television. Cool. Cool. Um, and I think you've answered this one question I had was just how you've integrated this into your practice, which is, like you said, you've taken, you know, the, the skills you've, you've used for other sim very similar, almost identical mm -hmm. procedures and just retooled them in, in for, um, applications, I guess, as far as the obesity aspect, what are like the kind of very common procedure? I know, I realize this is like a new and evolving field, yeah, even yeah. in IR, the evolving field of IR at large, what are mm -hmm. kind of those common interventions you, you are doing yourself and your colleagues, uh, as well. So inside interventional radiology, I think there are two main uh, procedures to manage weight loss or to accelerate manage accelerate weight loss or manage obesity. The bariatric artery embolization invented uh, by Arvin Arapali, who's here in Atlanta, uh, and Cliff Weiss, who's at Johns Hopkins and others. And that really is the, the first procedure that busted into a brand new, this brand new space, which we do, right? We do, because we... we created and invented a fibroid embolization procedure when all there was was surgery. Now there's percutaneous management of fibroids. So they took this embolization period and, and did that. That is a catheter-based procedure, usually goes radio or through the wrist for the non-clinical listeners and uh, into the left gastric artery, embolizes that artery because uh, in the fundus of the stomach, there are ghrelin-producing cells. And so ghrelin levels go down, people are less hungry, uh, and they can do better on diets. And then there's ours, which is a, the CT-guided cryovigotomy. Now, there are other minimally invasive procedures not necessarily done in interventional radiology, but uh, the efficacy and the safety are all, not all, but kind of not, a, not as yet defined uh, to, to be used. And then, so when I, I'm going like this with my hand because I'm going up the BMI scale, right? So there's normal BMI, and then there's this BMI that's greater than 25 and less than 36, which for the non-clinical listeners is really sort of, uh, people have an aunt or a friend who's 240 pounds, 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, they're falling into that. That's sort of the classic walking on the street overweight person. But then above that, uh, 37 and above, you've got bariatric surgery. And bariatric surgery is incredibly successful, uh, revolutionary, and amazing. And hundreds of thousands of pounds have been lost through bariatric surgery. Uh, diabetes and hypertension have even been reversed in large numbers following bariatric surgery. So, uh, so these are the medical interventions. And then there's medicines. And by, by the way, to always come back to this, but this is all in a book. <laughs> this is all in a book. Uh, because there are also medicines. And people who are overweight, they want to know what's available. They, is there a pill that's available? Uh, so we describe all of the medicines. Is there a procedure that I can have done or a surgery that I can have done? Uh, so this is, all, this is all in there as well. But like most things in medicine, it is the right combination of these things, either a medicine, procedure, uh, or things that you can do outside, uh, outside of, of medicine. Combine all of these things together, and then you have the best outcome. Gotcha. And I guess uh, briefly on that, where do all the IR procedures the, or the IR procedures you're doing fit into that? Because there's obviously, like you said, there's medications and then the most invasive mm -hmm. I imagine would be surgery. And then the mm -hmm. IR is kind of somewhere in between where, where do those, is it candidates who are not great surgical candidates or is, is it more, I guess, are there more indications than just that? No, this is a great question. So two answers to this question question or answer one is this is why you need the obesity medicine training. 
right? Because the combination of these things for each individual person is which ultimately can, is tailored, individual tailored treatment is going to be different for each person. And so having that training, understanding expertise will help you combine the right things together to get the person out. Uh, but the exciting thing about is answer, the second part to this answer, and that is that for those folks who have BMI 26 to 36, right? These are the normal overweight people, like I, like I mentioned earlier. There are really no options. Your option in that population of people, and that's, that's about 150 million people in the United States that fall into that. Uh, your options are really what you see on the mainstream. Your options are to go and, and pay money for a calorie restriction program that you won't be able to stick to, or go and uh, pay money for some other kind of gimmick that is not gonna get you where you want to go. And uh, there really are not good options for people that fall into there. And that is the sweet spot for the cryovagotomy and for the bariatric artery embolization, the two IR procedures, because we can see, right? That's a body habitus where CT guidance is possible. We have nice bariatric artery embolization images. Uh, and the decrease in hunger is what those people need to make that diet work, to make that so-called gimmick work. They just need, it's like Nicorette for those people who are starting to quit smoking. They just need something to grease the wheels and make it a little bit easier for them. And so the, the great thing, so, so that's the answer to the question. The great thing about that BMI sweet spot, though, is that this is what people need is an accelerant, right? This is... They need, and this is another thing that's been difficult for me to explain to the public, where they'll say, well, is intermittent fasting work or do those shakes work? You know, well, so yes, they will, but you won't be able to do it, right? Uh, if, if you didn't eat for three weeks, that would also work, but you're not going to be able to do it, right? So what we've created, because I, a different podcast interviewer asked me, what's different about my book compared to these other books? And this is what I, this is the answer I was trying to articulate. What's different about it is this is the thing like Nicorette that's going to make your abstinence work. That's going to make your diet work. This is what you need. This is the magic key you need to plug into this diet, whatever diet it is, to make it work. That's what's different. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for asking. Yeah, of course. Of course. And so I guess going on the book, you mentioned that you, one of the impetus for you to get obesity medicine training was that you've wanted to write this book for a long time. I guess what was going back, winding back to that, what was your like initial inspiration? Like, why would you, why did you want to write a book like this? And, and then I guess take us to like, I think you've touched on this already, but maybe like the, if you had to distill it to like one or two sentences, like what is your central thesis of the book? Okay. Okay. So, uh, so the, the central thesis, I'll go, I'll answer backwards. The central sure. thesis of the book is this is a vehicle, a message to all the people who have ever struggled with weight loss, that I hear you, you're correct that your body isn't letting you do this, and here's why. And then finally, here's what you can do to get around that. Okay. And then to the, the impetus behind it was sort of this event. I had family members who were overweight, and I would hear them try to articulate something. They would say, David, do you think that my thyroid is slow? Or do you think that, um, you know, I have bad genetics? I'd, I'd hear them try to articulate that there were forces that were stopping them from being successful, but they couldn't put their finger on exactly what it was, but they really believed that it was real, but the world just shamed them for trying to explain it. And so I became enamored with that because I knew that these family members, particularly my mom, were strong people otherwise. So I felt like it had to be maybe something else and something a little more complicated than that. And then I went through a phase in my life, all this described in a book, where uh, I became overweight and out of shape myself because I was training uh, medical school like you and residency and uh, I sort of uh, stopped paying attention to that. And then I had a family and all these kinds of things. And, uh, and I was pretty overweight and out of shape and then, but I had, I had been an athlete as a younger person, the kind of person who would work out and enjoy it and couldn't live without it, right? So then fast forward this 15 years or so, or, and then I said, well, now I'm going to exercise again. I'm just going to return to this 
be this person that I used to be and this weight will come off because that's what I see on TV, right? That's what I hear. And then I tried it and I thought, oh my God, this is impossible. No wonder these people are saying that they can't do this. This sucks. When I used to exercise, it was great. It wasn't like this, right? And I was still relatively young, so I didn't deal with arthritis and those kinds of things. But I quickly realized that this idea of going back to lean again was going to be horrible, if not impossible. And so once, once I felt it for myself, then I wanted to put pen to paper and get the message out there so that all the other people who thought it, that they were less of a person because they couldn't get this done, I just wanted to let them know, look, I hear you. I hear you. And you're right. And don't listen to these fat shamers because they don't know what they're saying. And I do because I'll be messing that. <laughs> no, I think that's, uh, you know, kind of being there and talking from your own experience. I'm sure that that brings a, a unique perspective, like you said, to compared to some of the other, I guess I'm curious. And in, in if you touch on this in book, and then if you counsel your patients, how do you get them through that first because I imagine that's probably one of the more difficult aspects is getting through that first aspect of the change or, or the catching point. If, if you, as you decide, yeah, how, do you, how do you get them to that catching point? Right. Yeah. The, the subject, you know, of the first part of the second part of the book, once we get past the explanation, right. Uh, there, there's, there's a whole host of things. Some of them are procedure based, right. Mm -hmm. You just flat out cut off their hunger. They have an easier time. They do great. Uh, but the things that we explain in the book are outside of, of the field of medicine. And I'll just give you some examples of the mistakes that people make. Uh, the easiest to understand, I think, is the abrupt uh, restriction of calories and beginning of exercise. This is a very, very common mistake where on Monday, somebody who wants to lose weight starts both of those things at once. And the restriction of calories, uh, first of all, the body perceives that as a starvation event, right? And then superimposed exercise, which is a new stressor on the body, uh, for human evolution that's however many thousands of years old, this is now perceived as a famine event. So, uh, so what does the body do? The body, first of all, decreases basal metabolic rate, or for the non-clinical people, it stops, slows down the calories that it burns on any given day and goes into storage mode. The exact opposite thing that you want when you cut your calories because you wanna lose weight. But because your body thinks it's starving, your body reacts by absolutely offsetting everything that you do. You try to burn calories by exercising. You try to not take in as many calories and disrupt that calories in, calories out balance. But your body doesn't want that to be imbalanced because that equals starvation. So your body will then get you back to even by stopping the number of calories that it burns or decreasing them. And then further, uh, through gut microbiota, selecting and pulling more calories from the food that you eat and storing them away. So that's a sort of easy to understand uh, fight that your body gives you uh, right out of the gate. So you can beat that simply by picking one. And in the book, the catching point actually has uh, a definition. It has an exercise capacity definition of 220 minutes, uh, after which these things get easier, eating healthy as well as exercising. And so I choose exercise. And uh, this also will not sell books, by the way for anybody out there who has aspirations, uh, sometimes the truth does not sell books. And this is one of those things, which is that most people who start don't have a, the exercise capacity that is enough to impact their weight loss. So they have an exercise capacity that allows them to walk to the end of the street or walk 400 yards. And that is not enough to impact your weight loss, right? And, but more importantly, it, it, you're in that stage where that walk is miserable or the restriction is miserable and your body's fighting you back. So what we do is change that exercise capacity for however long it takes. 12 weeks is what the book says, but if it takes longer, it takes longer. When you hit the amount of exercise capacity, now you can impact your weight loss for real. Uh, you've now got the ability to jog 30 minutes without stopping. Now you've changed your exercise capacity, but we haven't done anything with diets until now, right? And so that's the answer to your question. How, how can you beat these? This is one example of how you can beat the body's, uh, you can beat the body's responses. So don't cut your calories, right? Don't make your body think that you're starving. Just change your exercise capacity. Your body can get on board with that. And then once you hit that catching point, which is so magical and important about that point is that beyond there, your weight loss is not only going to be easy, but it's enjoyable. 
that's what I really want to, I want to pull people from one camp to the next. Um, so that's one way. That's one way you can beat the body's responses. There are so many other ways like paying attention to recovery, for example, because you're trying to build a calorie building machine and all this. But simply put, when you implement these strategies, you make this, whatever diet you pick, intermittent fasting, whole 30, whatever, whatever one you pick, you make it doable by implementing these strategies. You make it doable. There's a famous paper in JAMA uh, about 10 or 12 years ago where they took all the mainstream diets, the Ornish diet, the Atkins diet, uh, some keto diets, and they compared the outcomes to try and figure out what was the best diet for patients, right? And guess what was the only variable that correlated with success? Adherence. Those people who are able to follow the program and stay on the program did well. That's all that mattered. So what we need are strategies to make it easy so we can stay on board, stay on the program. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, that's really interesting. And then I guess the one thing I'm thinking on, and we, we were just talking about it a minute ago was, I guess, what's your, what's your advice for people in residency that, cause you know, as you know, it's, you know, you went through it yourself and you're still a very, as an attending, a very busy person. What yeah. is your advice for, you know, uh, keep like adhering to it, keeping it the long term. Cause there's, you know, there's points where you, you know, you take a lot of call and you're tired and you don't feel like it. And I think this could apply to other, you know, people who in non-medical fields who are, you know, maybe they're busy raising a family and their job is demanding and things like that. Like what, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, maybe do you touch on that at all? Like what are your thoughts? I'm just curious, even from my own personal standpoint, just keeping myself healthy and, and fit and, and eating well, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, uh, in my opinion, I should add that disclaimer before I answer this. Uh, there's always this, and, and uh, my son, who's a pre-med student now, I mentioned to you before we started, he's really, really good at this. Uh, I think that you, in order to survive this life, which is, which is busier and busier and busier than it ever was, you have got to have alternating shifting priorities. And sometimes for example, when you're a first year resident and, uh, and you're taking a lot of call, uh, sometimes you can't do everything at once. And while you're doing that, you might be eating cookies in the call room because uh, if you try to do everything at once, just like uh, when we're only talking about weight loss, when you try to exercise and, and, uh, and restrict your calories all at once, it's a recipe for failure. So if you take 10 steps back and you talk about life in general, uh, I think it's the same recipe for failure. So you've got to have these alternating priorities that ultimately are going to balance out because at the end of the day, at the end of your career, uh, you're going to want to have in retrospect balance and you will, you will have that if you alternate and shift your priorities, depending on what's going on. So I don't think it can be done. I don't think that people can... Uh, work the kind of jobs that we work and uh, have small kids and their family of origin and uh, volunteer at the soup kitchen and also uh, be in great shape. I think it's, it's, it's something's got to give. Yeah. It's like that. I think what do they say in med school was that is there's like studying or what is it? Sleep and um, free time. And then I forget what the third thing is. And basically you you can do two of them, but not all three of them. And right. it's something, right. it's, you know, it's basically like, like you said, you can't have it all. I think even though right. people may proclaim that you can't, you can't have it all. <laughs> you and I are definitely starting to solve big philosophical problems <laughs> about life. Um, but, but every single thing, life in, in boy, we're really off the wall now, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Life is a zero sum game, Dr. Cooper. And, and, yeah. and that, that you've, everything is, everything is a give and take, including this, including this, but, you know, you'll hear uh, about how we have to prioritize uh, our health and our wellness. And that's important. So the one thing I would pass along to you and to this audience is that you will feel this nag in the back of your mind as you go through that uh, almost a guilt for, uh, for self-care and so on. And I would encourage you not to give into that because uh, everything around you is going to change. All the people you know now, all the attendings you have around you now, it's all going to change, but you'll still be with yourself 10 years from now. 
And so uh, while you're working uh, understandably to impress your attendings or wherever you might want to have a job, uh, nobody will fault you for self-care. And even if they do, they're going to be gone from your life anyway, and you'll still be with yourself. So, uh, so whatever form self-care might come, sleep, meditation, uh, eating clean, exercising, have some, have some amount. Gotcha. No, I appreciate that. Appreciate that advice. And I think just to, to close things out, this has been a really interesting discussion. Um, we ask every, every guest this, when you're not doing, uh, you know, interventional radiology and all these procedures and, and, and research and everything, what, what do you do in your, your spare time? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, I, people are, I, I, I was an MMA fighter for a lot of years oh, wow, outside, really? uh, outside of this. And while I was training and I spent a lot of time with that, that's a very time consuming hobby. And then I had children. And so for the past 18 years, I was doing that sort of coming home and going to basketball and, uh, seeing, helping kids with homework and so on. And now I'm in this uh, strange part of my life where my son just went to college, who I mentioned before. My daughter's about to go pretty soon as well. Uh, and so I've been asking myself that question. What is it that I'm going to do when I'm not doing this? So the jury is out. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I don't have kids myself, but I, I imagine that that keeps you plenty busy for a while, a long time. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Pelogo, thank you so much for uh taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us. And, and uh, I certainly learned a lot about, you know, BC medicine and kind of where the future of that field is going and kind of how it can interface with other fields like radiology and medicine and surgery. And um, so thank you again for uh, telling us. And then where, if people want to buy your book, where's the best place for them to go uh, to get that? I, I appreciate you asking that. And by the way, thank you for doing this podcast. This is a brilliant sure. thing that you're doing and thank you for having me. But uh, the answer really is drprologo.com. It's okay. just D-R-P-R-O-L-O-G-O.com. And that links out to almost everything that we talked about, uh, including me, should anybody want to uh, ask me anything or, or maybe work together or something like that. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, put that in the in the show notes to link to, to your website for sure. So Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel, they're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month -month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.